You turn there once again to the book of Revelation, chapter 3, and as Pastor Frank has already said to you folks who are guests with us today, we thank you so much for making this your church this morning anyway, coming to worship with us, and we hope, we trust, we pray that this time in the Word of God will be of special blessing and benefit to you in, in your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, one of the things that we do uh, pretty naturally in life is we live with a constant awareness of time, right? Now, I don't get accused of that a whole lot um, because of the, the the length of the services that we have around here. But it, it's, it, I mean, we can look at just the fact that we're all in this room here this morning and we got here on time, most of us anyway, uh, that we live with this awareness of, of time. Now, most of you came for the Sunday school hour, and so you know what time Sunday school started, and because you know what time it started, and those of you that came for the morning service, same deal, you know what time it started, but because you know what it, when it started, it dictated some things to you, right? It, it dictated to you this morning what time you, you got up. It, it dictated to you how, how long you sat sipping your coffee, it dictated to you what time you stopped sipping your coffee and started to go get yourself ready. You hopped in the shower at a certain time because you knew what time you had to be here this morning. It dictated to you, ladies, how how long you fiddled with your hair this morning, right? You know, I mean, if if it would have started 15 minutes later, you would have spent another 15 minutes doing your your hair. But it it, it all all of life because we have this awareness of time, it, it dictates to us certain things. And, and that's true in, in every walk of life until somehow it, it comes to that, that spiritual realm and all of a sudden what's characteristic of us is that we forget what time it is. We forget what the Lord has already revealed to us in, in His Word and we forget that the most important timepiece on this planet is not the one that we're wearing on our watch or on our wrist this morning, or that's on the wall in our house that's dictating so many things to us. God has got a timepiece that He's given to us. And that timepiece ought to be dictating some things to us in our life. Let me just show you this. I had you turn to Revelation, and we will be there. But why don't you go back for a sec to, to Revel or Romans Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. And let's pick up in verse 11. He says, And that knowing the time, and that's something that if you'll begin to look at that thing in Scripture, there was a group of, of people back in the Old Testament who were commended because they knew what time it was. Not, not in, in, you know, it's, it's 1033. Not that time. They knew what time it was from God's perspective. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 1, he commends them because they knew the times and the seasons. They knew some things that from God's perspective, they knew what time it was. And what he's, that's the same thing that he's talking about here. And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. 
The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Why would we do all of these things? Because we know what time it is. We know we don't have much time. Now, now Paul wrote this almost 1,900 years ago. Now, guys, let me just tell you, the night is far spent. And now is our salvation even nearer than when we believed. And what we know from the Word of God is we know the times and the seasons. We know what we're dealing with here, don't we? I mean, we've seen it. Those of you that may be newer to our fellowship, maybe you've never put all this together, but in Genesis chapter 1, God, who is a God of pictures, I mean, and that's very clear as what, with what Jesus came to this planet and began to talk about. He, he's, he talks about how that the, through the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, he says that Moses wrote of me. And yet you can go back to the first five books of the Bible and the plain, simple truth is you can't find where Moses wrote of him. Now, what was the deal? Was Jesus, you know, just kind of in a wave, a little bit deluded, didn't know for sure what he was talking about, didn't know what this book, which is him, didn't know what it was all about? Absolutely not. He wrote of him in the pictures. And in Genesis chapter 1, God lays out an incredible thing about helping us to know what time it is. And it won't take a long time to exhaust this thing, but just to put it in your mind, just to remind all of us, there's certain things that knowing the time, it ought to dictate to our lives. What he says in Genesis chapter 1, is, is what happens there, is he takes you through the creative week. okay, And he brings you through the, the first six days. And then on the seventh day, what it says is God sanctified that day. You know what the word sanctified means in the Bible? It means to set it apart. It says that he set that day apart for himself. And if you come to First Peter or Second Peter chapter three and verse eight, what, what it says is, "Beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing." Okay, what's that? That a day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as a day. Uh, beloved, uh, don't miss that. Don't be ignorant of that one thing. And if you go plug that into the equation back there in Genesis chapter 1 and the first parts of chapter 2, what you find is that there will be 6,000 years of human history and then there's going to be a thousand year day that is defined for us in Revelation chapter 20 as the millennium. A thousand year period that is called, strangely enough, the day of the Lord. You remember what it says about that seventh day? He set that seventh day apart for who? For himself. You know what it was? It was the Lord's day, a thousand-year day. And we were fast approaching, as this new millennium is coming, we were fast approaching the conclusion of that 6,000th year. The next millennium would fit real nicely into what Jesus said was going to take place on this planet, a thousand-year rule and reign from his throne in Jerusalem. Am I saying it's going to be the year 2000? No. Am I saying it's going to be real close? No. You say that, okay? I'm just telling you what he says is don't be ignorant of that fact. And you plug that in to, to that thing. and it, it, it's, it's pretty clear. And, and if that weren't enough, what we're studying, I'll go back to Revelation. 
What we're studying in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 are the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor, which when put in their context in the whole of the book of Revelation, what we find is that they represent seven periods of church history that pick up basically where the book of Acts leaves off and giving us the historical record of the church. And it brings us through historically in an outline form in the content of these letters what it does is it brings us all the way through to the rapture of the church, which is found in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. It's clearly defined in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 as well, exactly what takes place there in, in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. But you're coming through those seven periods of church history, and we have been able to go through those things, and we've been able to identify them historically. We know beyond any shadow of a doubt that we are now presently living in the last days of the last church period, which is called the, the Laodicean church period. It is the letter to the Laodiceans. And that is a word, again, because of the content of what we're going to be looking at in our study this morning. That word Laodicea, if you're a guest with us this morning, that needs to be something that you familiarize yourself with right now. When we use that term this morning, what that is talking about is that group of people that, that profess to know the Lord Jesus Christ in these last days, in this last period that is called the Laodicean church period. Okay, And what we know, okay, we're living at that time, we're living in the Laodicean age. We know because as soon as the conclusion of this that the letter to Laodicea is concluded there in chapter 3 and verse 22, the next event, who in chapter 4 and verse 1, John, who is a picture of the church of Jesus Christ in, in the New Testament, a door is opened in heaven, and a voice is, is heard, a trumpet sounds, and come up hither. It's a picture. It's the rapture of the church identified for us in Revelation chapter, chapter 4 and verse 1. That's where it is. And we are living just this side of that. Now, based on that, based on the fact that we know what time it is, it ought to dictate some things to us. That's what we saw back there in, in the book of Romans chapter 13. Knowing the time that it is high time that we awake out of our sleep. And, and what we've been doing as we've been going through this, this, this study, we've been coming through those, those first several church periods represented in these, these, these letters and we came through the, the Ephesus church period. We came through Smyrna. And we came through Pergamos and Thyatira and Sardis. And then we came to the Philadelphian church period. And man, it was the greatest thing in all the world. Well, we spent that entire time that day just going back to that period of history between the years of approximately 1500 up to the, around 1900 when it was the, the, the greatest time for the church of Jesus Christ on this planet in all of the history of the church. The Philadelphian church period was an incredible time. The greatest preachers were alive at that time. The greatest missionary movements. The greatest doors to the world and people coming to Christ like at no other period of time in all of history. And man, it was just it was so wonderful to relish in all that God was doing there. And then of course the next period is the period that we're living in, Laodicea. And so uh, here we were, we just come off of the greatest period of time, and then we come to the Laodicean period, and now 
I was faced that next week with coming and, and teaching about the time period that we're living in. And it is the most depressing thing in the entire Bible. We were going through these letters and we were finding how with each one of them, the Lord was commending them for certain qualities that they had. And, and with most of the churches, He did have to, to bring a condemnation to them. But He was commending them for some things, but when you come to the, the letter to the Laodiceans, there's not one thing that the Lord could find about the characteristics of the church in this time period that we are presently living in. He could not find one thing to commend us for. And so we all, it was so great to talk about Philadelphia. The problem is we had to come and face the fact that we don't live in the Philadelphian church period. We live in Laodicea, so boy, what a bummer. But the fact of the matter is, living in Laodicea is a choice. You don't have to. Well, what do you mean? Man, we can't go back in time. No, you can, you can go capture, though, what those Philadelphians had that caused them to be the kind of people that God could use to take His Word and bless with His power to take that Word all over the world. And so what we began to do is we began to look at what is it that was so key in that Philadelphian church period? What was it that those people had? What were the characteristics during that period of time in history that the Lord was so free to be able to just pour out His blessing on them? And I began to go through there and just say, how could we, as people who are living in the Laodicean period, how could we go back and have a, a new Philadelphian kind of experience? A new Philadelphian kind of life. How, how can we live in this Laodicean period and yet reside with the blessing of God from a different time period? And so what we began to do is we began to go to this letter. And rather than try to rush through it all and just say, here's what Philadelphia was, and man, it was great, and here's what Laodicea is, and man, it stinks, and well, let's just go on and study some more. We began to say, hey, what are we doing? Why would we be content to just live a Laodicean existence with a closed door, absent from the presence and the power of God? Why Why would we do that? And so we went back and we first began to see that there are five factors that were true of this church. Now, it's going to take more than just five simple little points. I mean, we've been three weeks on that first factor, the Christ that we know. The, the thing that's going to cause us to move out of this Laodicean church period and experience the life and the blessing and the power of the Philadelphian church period, first of all, it's going to be the Christ that we know. And, and man, we've just, I, I've tried to, to, to help you to see based on what is true of our life and what the Bible says is true of our life and of this period, why it is that during this period of time, the Christ that we know is a different Christ than the Philadelphian church period knew. They knew the Christ of the Bible. We know a humanized Christ. And what we've tried to do is we've tried to show Him in the fullness of who He is. He, he writes to this church and He says, These things saith He that is holy. And we began to just talk about our inadequacies as Laodiceans 
to be able to see the Lord in all of His, His holiness. And we talked about the fact if we're ever going to know the Christ that they know, and if we're ever going to move out of this Laodicean existence, then we must come to the point where we have an overwhelming comprehension of His holiness. And then secondly, an unqualified surrender to His truth. He writes and says, These things saith He that is true. And what has happened in Laodicea, folks, is our minds are so influenced by the culture around us that it dictates to us what we come to this book and we read. This is truth, but we come so tainted that we really don't believe that He is true and that every man is a liar, as it says in the book of Romans chapter 3. But you see, that was what they experienced in the Philadelphian church period. And then the third thing about the Christ we know is we talked about the fact we must have an utter dependence upon His access or His authority and access. He says, These things saith He that hath the key of David. And if you want a definition of what that is, He defines it for you right there. He that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. And we went back to the book of Isaiah chapter 22 where the first mention of the key of David is found. And what we found out is that there was a man who had been, he was the king. And what he did is he had the treasures to the kingdoms. And what we began to see is that in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus talked about the fact that, that in the kingdom of heaven, that there were treasures out in a field. And he said that there was a certain man who came, and when he saw that treasure in that field, he sold all that he had to go into that field and to buy them. And he hid certain of them in that field. And what we began to see is that Jesus is has the key of David. The field is the world. He is the one to the, the treasures that are in the world, the people that are in the world. And He is the one that opens the door to the treasures of the world. And what He wants to do, what, what He'd love to do in this church, is give to us the key of David, the key that unlocks the door to the treasures of this world so that He could put His power and His authority and His access on our life so that we can be what they were and reach people the way that they did in the, the Philadelphian church period. So, the first factor that we've talked about that will determine whether we become Philadelphian believers in this Laodicean age is the Christ we know. And now, this morning, the second factor. Not only the Christ we know, but very simply, the life we live the life we live the philadelphian age was what it was and the philadelphian believers were what they were not only because of the christ they knew but because of the life they lived there were, there were certain key characteristics that our lord found in their lives and we have the great benefit of being able to have the record of what was true in their life that caused the lord jesus christ to unleash his power on on them and caused Him to open the doors for them to be able to impact this world with the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And listen, if we're ever going to experience that power and that access in this Laodicean age, the characteristics that we find that were true of their life are characteristics that are going to need to be true of our lives. And here's the first one. First of all, participation in the work of the Lord. Participation 
in the work of the Lord. He says to these believers in in the Philadelphian age, he says to them in verse 8, look at it, he says, I know thy works. Now listen, the works that he's commending them for here were not just good deeds toward their fellow man. Okay, now the Philadelphia, the word Philadelphia, it, it means brotherly love. There's a word that we get from the word Philadelphia that we use in, in this culture. It's the word philanthropist. Are you familiar with the word? You know what a philanthropist is? It's that word that the Wizard of Oz was trying to get out at the the end. He, he, back in our country, we we, we call them we, we call them good deed doers. Remember that? A philanthropist is a good deed doer. Somebody who who does good deeds, good works, and, and Philadelphia means that. But listen, the works that Jesus is talking about here in verse eight are not those works. It's the works that, that listen. It's the works that every believer in Jesus Christ has been called of God to be a participant in. It's what 1 Corinthians 15:58 calls the work of the Lord. The work of the Lord. In other words, the work that our Lord did when He was here on this planet working. And listen, I know we beat this drum all the time around here, but the work that our Lord did when He was here on this planet working was the work of making disciples. And that work of making disciples involves three things. It involves evangelism, it involves edification, and it involves equipping. Okay, what all of that means, real quick, is it means winning people to Christ. That's evangelism. And then investing your life and the Word of God into them to see them grow to spiritual maturity. You know what that is? That's edification. And bringing them to the point spiritually to where they now can go be a participant themselves in the work of the Lord. You know what that is? That's equipping. Now, does that sound familiar to you at all? I I wasn't here, but uh, Deb, if you wouldn't mind, let me borrow your... Your bulletin. Would you, would you take your bulletin for just a sec? We're talking about the work of the Lord. We're talking about the three basic components that, that make up the work of the Lord. Evangelism, edification, and equipping. Look on the back of your bulletin where it says the First Baptist mission statement. Here's what our church is all about, guys. Okay, now we're living in Laodicea and we say this is what we're all about. The mission of First Baptist Church is to glorify God by reconciling each individual to Him through His Son. Give me another word for that. Evangelism. Conforming them into Christ's image through His Word. Give me another word for that. Edification. Perfecting them to minister His Word to the world. Of course, that's That's equipping. And and now listen, that's the work. Right there, it's stated for you. What we've done is we've tried to concise the teaching of the New Testament about what a church is and and what that basically is. It it sums up the ministry that the Lord Jesus Christ had when He came to this planet. It's the work that He commanded 
that we do, and it is the work that he is commending these Philadelphian believers for. That's the work that the Lord is wanting to see take place in your life. He wants to see you making disciples. He wants to see this church be a disciple-making church. And listen, that's exactly what he found in the Philadelphian church period. Listen, if there was ever a period in the history of the church of Jesus Christ where there was a, a, a time where people carried out the mission the way that the Lord Jesus Christ said to carry it out in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and 58, it was this period, man. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 58 says that as believers in Jesus Christ, not the super saints, not the pastors, not, not the deacons, but every believer in Jesus Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 58, what it says is that all of us are to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. What's that? We've already defined it for you, what he did when he was here. It's our mission statement. It's the whole shot. And you see, that was the way the Philadelphian church period, our brothers and sisters back there, y'all, Listen, that's how they approached the work of the Lord. And that's why our Lord commends them in verse 8 for their, their works. And, and listen, if we're ever going to get out of Laodicea and into a, a new Philadelphian kind of life and existence, I can promise you, it, it's, it's not going to be because we've very carefully identified and, and worded a trendy little mission statement to throw on the back of our bulletins and to put in the, you know, on a nice little gig on the, the front of our, our, our Bibles. Listen, it's going to be because that statement is characteristic of our lives. It's going to, yeah, that was a great place for an amen. It, it's, be, it, it's going to be because our lives are bent on participating in the same thing that our Lord came to this planet and He was bent on doing. And because we too are steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Well, I've got to carry on a full-time job. I don't have a cush job like you pastors. Yeah, you guys can make disciples all day. i got to work. No, you don't understand. While you're at work, you're always about the same thing that Jesus was about everywhere He went. Thinking in terms of the people around you, in terms of evangelism, winning them to Christ, reconciling them. You see them like that. You see, you're never, you're never just at work. You're always in the work of the Lord, no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, and building them up. And now, you know what's amazing? And I don't want to, I don't want to beat a dead horse. But man, you know what? I, I believe that there are some of you that are in this church and man, you want to see this be a Philadelphian church. But you know what? We, we've got people after all of these years beating this drum that we've been talking about this morning of making disciples. This is what Jesus did. This is what He's commanded every believer to do. I mean, hey, this is not new stuff here, you know? And, and yet we've still got people who have not even said, you know what? I'd, I'd like to be disciples much less ever going and making one, just just coming to the point to where, you know what, I, I, I'd like for somebody to take this book and begin to take it. Because I, I've been one to Christ, and now I, I, need to be, I need to be conformed into the image of Christ. And I know it's going to happen 
through the Word of God and through the plan that He established. What's it going to take? And and can I just say to you, we're, we're wasting our time here this morning to say, yeah, we really want to be a Philadelphian church, but now if it involves us making disciples, then, then, well, forget it. Well, okay, then forget it. Because the reason that the power of God rested on those people is He could look and He could commend them because they were steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Some say, well, I've been discipled. Can, can I ask you, are you making a disciple right now? Well, bummer. Well, I didn't, I, you know, I, I did, but haven't won anybody to Christ right now. And, and you know what? That, that's, that's cool. I, I'm not condemning you for that, but could I ask you this? Are you praying for doors of utterance every single day, all through the day? Is that the passion of your heart? Because you're steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. You don't have a disciple right now. Do you find yourself saying, oh God, open doors of utterance for me to be able to speak the mysteries of Christ so that I might be able to win someone to you today? Is it a part of your life? And if you are discipling someone, could I, could I ask you this? Is the Lord ever going to write to you and commend you for how you do His work? You see, you're never out of the woods, are you? But you see, that's that's the way that this that this church was, and they they participated in the work of the Lord, and that's what's got to be characteristic of our life if we're ever going to get to the point to where Philadelphia is, is alive and well in our life and in this this church. It's going to be because we are participating in the work of the Lord. And then there's a second characteristic that he saw in saw in these Philadelphian believers and that he likewise wants to see in our lives and must be in our lives if we're ever going to get out of Laodicea and it is cooperation with others in the local body. Cooperation with others in the local body. Now now look at how he commends these Philadelphian believers in the middle of verse 8. He says, For thou hast a little strength. And you say, now, now, hold up there, brother. I mean, you mean to tell me that's a, that's a commendation? He's, he's commending them because they have a little strength? I, I mean, if somebody's been, been telling me that the, the guy that, that, that I work out with is just absolutely huge he's got you know a 54 inch chest he's got a 32 inch waist he's got 21 inch buys and and he's just an absolute powerhouse and they've just been telling you over and over man you just won't believe this guy that pastor mark works out with and so you come to me and you you say to me man tell me about this guy that you work out with i I mean i I heard all kinds of things about him and and then i say to you oh he's got a a little strength i mean you're, you're not going to walk away going, wow, can't wait to meet this guy, right? right? I, I mean, you know, saying that somebody has a, a little strength, I mean, you're, you're probably going to say to me, oh, I, I thought he was just some incredible, incredible stud muffin, man. But, you know, I mean, I've heard all kinds of stuff about this guy, but, but you're telling me oh, uh, he, he's got a, a little strength? And, and the point is, for, for weeks and weeks now, I, I've, been, I've been talking to you about the, this Philadelphian church period, and and I, I was telling you how awesome it was and, 
and how incredible it was and the power that, that would rested upon the, these people. And, and man, it was just an incredible thing. And, and along comes Jesus here and he, he, he screws up my whole sermon. Because Jesus comes along and, and he writes to him after all that I've done to build him up, and he says, "Yeah, you, you have a little strength." So, so what's up with, with that? Well, what we need to understand here is that in the context, when Jesus says, "Thou hast a little strength," he's not making a reference here to their spiritual power. He's making a reference to their number. The thing that made the Philadelphian church period such a force to reckon with was not the fact that they just had some unbelievable, vast army of humanity that had been won to Christ. And all, I mean, here are all of these spiritual soldiers just going out all over the world. Now, through the, the Thyatira and Sardis church period, remember, we were coming out of the Dark Ages back there. Remember when we were covering that, covering that ground? That's, that's Thyatira and, and, and Sardis. And what we were talking about, what we were seeing there, is the number of Bible believers ha- had grown. So that by the Philadelphian church period, th- there would have been on this planet during that period of time that our Lord is addressing here, there would have been quite a few million. Th- they, were, they were growing in number, but compared to the world's population at that time, they were still a small minority. And that's why Jesus says to them, you have... A little strength. But you see, the, the point is, with those few numbers, just that, just that little bit of numerical strength, Jesus was able to do with those people unbelievable things. And you see, that was the lesson that Paul learned, wasn't it? In 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 10. You remember what he said? When I am weak, then am I what? I'm, I'm strong. In verse 9, just previous to that, he says, that's when, that's when the power of Christ rests upon me. You remember the story of, of Jesus feeding the, the 5,000 in, in Matthew chapter 14 and, and verse 21. And of course, you, you guys know that the verse says that it was, it was 5,000 men. And that wasn't counting, it, it says in, in, the, in the text. It wasn't counting the women and the children. So there would have been a minimum of 15,000 people that were there. But remember, it wasn't, in that whole story of what was going on there, it wasn't that they had no food, was it? It was just that there were five little loaves of bread and two fishes. And what were they, you remember, among so many? Jesus told them, you give me what what you have here. And what I want you to do is I want, I want you to do what, what I, I tell you to do. Now, I'm going to include you in this, but you just make sure you do what I tell you to do. And you know what they did? They did what he said to do. And, and God took that, that little boy's lunch. He took that little that they had, and he not only fed over 15,000 people, but the Scripture says that they took up 12 baskets full of what was left over. And the whole point of the, the story wasn't, wow. Look what that boy did with his lunch. Right? The point was, wow, look at what God was able to do with that little. And, and you know what? It, when, you, when you put that story really in, in your mind, you've got to look at what Jesus was pulling off there. 
And if you know that he had the power to take that one little kid's lunch and feed 15,000 people with it and take up the 12 baskets full with, with what was left over, if he could do that, then you know good and stinking well that he didn't need the little kid's lunch in the first place, did he? I mean, he could have just spoke the thing into existence and he could have fed everybody. I mean, he could have, you know, right there in the, the first century, threw up a McDonald's and fed everybody, you know? He, he, that would have been no problem for him. But you see, God always uses human instrumentality to do his work. And he took the offering of that little lunch from that little boy and he did something supernatural with it. And you see, that's what he did in the Philadelphian church period. He took that little bit, that little strength, and he did something supernatural with it. Do you remember what the Lord told Gideon in, in Judges chapter 7 in, in verse 2? Here's Gideon, and he was about to lead the armies of Israel in, into the, the battle against the Midianites. And this is what he said, Judges chapter 7, verse 2. He said, the people that are with thee, this is God speaking, Gideon, the people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. And, and God in the, in the passage area, and I'm paraphrasing, but, but God says, and I, I know what's going to happen. You're going to go in there with 22,000 soldiers, and that's where they started with this thing. He said, you're going to go in there with 22,000 soldiers, and, and everyone, and you're going to blow them away, and, and everyone's going to say, well, what in the world did you expect? You know, I mean, 22,000 coming in there, and, and he says, and I know what else is going to happen. Israel is going to be walking around like, you know, they're all that because, you know, they went into the army and just, you know, wreaked havoc on, the, on these people. So you know what God did? He whittled the 22,000 down to, do you remember how many? 300. So that they had just a little strength. And you see, he didn't bring them down to zero. He didn't bring them to the point where they had no strength. And he didn't whittle it down to where they just had three. But, but he whittled it down to where that 300 had to trust him for the victory. And, and so that there was no doubt in anybody's mind where the real strength for the victory came from. And he told those few, now, now listen, fellas, you do what I tell you to do. And they did. And you know what God did? He supernaturally delivered the Midianites into their hands. And again, the point wasn't, wow, look at what Gideon and his mighty army did. The point was, wow, look at what God was able to do with those few. You see, and it was the, pretty much the, the same deal in the Philadelphian age. You see, had they come out of the Sardis period, and had there been so many that they were the majority, it would have been all very explainable. But what happened in the Philadelphian church period, as far as reaching this world was concerned, it didn't happen because their number was so great. It happened because God told those few, now listen, you just do what I tell you to do. And they did it. 
And God took that little strength and He supernaturally opened the doors of access to the people of this world and He showed Himself mighty. We've been talking a whole lot about how great these Philadelphians were. The thing that was so great about these Philadelphians is they let God be God. And He is a great God if you'll just let Him do His thing. And you see, that was what was so key to their lives and the application to us is if you take all of the people that have assembled in this building this morning, okay, and if, I mean, you count, you know, everybody that's, that's around here, you know what? This is, uh, this is a, this is a fairly large local church that God's pulled off here in New Philadelphia. It's a fairly large church. It's kind of like I'd look at those five loaves and two fishes as a fairly large lunch for a little boy. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, I'd like to see. I bet he was a roly-poly thing, you know? I mean, that's a pretty stinking hefty lunch, man. Five loaves and two fishes. Mama packed a pretty mean bucket for this boy. That's a that's a that's a fairly fairly large lunch for a little kid's stomach. But you see, the little lunch wasn't much in light of fifteen thousand stomachs. And this is a fairly large church if we're talking about the national average. But it, it's not a drop in the bucket compared to the population of our county. I mean, have you ever stopped to think about it? I mean, you know. People always talk about how large this church is, even compared to, to, to the, the community, you know. But have you ever thought about the fact that we've got represented here today just a, a little better than 1% of just the population of, of Tuscarawas County? You know what I'd call that? A little strength. You see, if it's, and with this little strength, if it's just me, and, and, and I'm here, and I'm by myself, and I'm trying to reach 85,000 people. Hey, hang it up. It ain't going to happen. And if it's just you out there, and you're out there trying to reach 85,000 people, but, but you see what God has done in this local body is He's pulled us together. And we have a little strength. And it's not just me trying to reach this community. And it's not just you out there trying to, to reach them. God has put all of us here together. He put us in this local church. And the point is, when we will be the body that He designed for us to be. You see, this was His plan to reach the world. It was through the local church. And as believers in Jesus Christ come together and they begin to minister to one another. What the Bible says is the body of Christ is built up. And as it is built up, it becomes in that community what it is supposed to be so that God is able to use that church as a, a channel through which to reach this world. You see, again, if it's just me, man, we're in trouble. If it's just you, it ain't going to happen. God says, my plan is, though, I'm going to pull these people together and I'm going to give them a little strength, and if they'll just do what I tell them to do, man, there, there's no limit to what can take place. There was a magazine several years ago that that carried a, a, a story by way of a, a series of, of pictures, 
And the first picture was a picture of a vast wheat field out in western Kansas. And in the picture, is from one horizon to another. I mean, all you could see was just this wheat that was waving in the wind. The second picture was a picture of a mother in distress inside her farmhouse in the middle of that field. And she had a small boy that had somehow wandered away from the house and was out there in that wheat field. And the little guy was, was so small that he, you couldn't see him over the wheat. And the little boy couldn't see above the wheat to see where he needed to go to, to, to find his way back to the house. And, and she had called her husband and the two of them had gone through the wheat field and they had searched all day, all day long. And, and finally, they, they called the neighbors and, and here are the neighbors and the neighbors are out and they're out and you can see them out in, in the, the wheat field trying to find the, the, this boy. They knew that the boy was too little to be able to see above the wheat and so they knew that they were going to have to be the ones to find him. And so the picture showed the mother in great distress. The third picture depicted all the people who had heard about the, the little boy being lost and and what had happened is they had gathered that next morning. And the picture showed them what, had, what they had done is they had joined their hands together. And they began to sweep through that wheat field. And then the last picture was just a, a killer. The picture was of a, a father. This father standing over the body of his little son. And they had finally found him. But he was dead. They had gotten there too late. The, the elements, it's too cold through the night. It was too much for the boy. And underneath the, the final picture of a weeping father and his wife were the words, Oh God, if only we had joined hands sooner. And do you see the point? If, if, we, if we just come to church at this place and we just, we just gather here and we listen to sermons together and we sing the same, same songs in, in the room and then we're all, we all go out from here and we're all doing our own little thing. You know what? There's so many people that are out there that cannot find their way above the wheat of the world. They can't see their way back to the Father's house. They have no idea and so what God has done is He's placed us together in this body. And what He's looking for is for the body to be the body. For it to be connected. For it to be joined. So that we sweep through the field which is this world and reach people with the Gospel before it's too late. Cooperation in the local body. You see, that, that, was, that was what they were about. And, and, and now, now get, get the picture. The local body. That's, that's the channel that God has planned to use. Don't go out of here and say, well, that's what we've been saying all along, man. The body of Christ on this planet needs to join hands. We need to be unified. And, and... No. God didn't plan for it to work like that. He planned for the people of a local body to be what He's called them to be and to do what He told them to do, 
and to come together and be unified in that place and minister to one another in that place. And as we do that, we will, I promise you, we will impact the world with the gospel. But not only were the lives of our Philadelphian brothers and sisters characterized by participation in the work of the Lord and cooperation with others in the local body, but a third thing that our Lord wants to characterize our lives, and that is possession of the Word of God. Possession of the Word of God. I want you to look at this third way he commends the Philadelphians toward the end of of verse 8. Look at what he says. And hast kept my word. Now now, now think about that, what, what he's saying there. And hast kept my word. Now something interesting about that is that this is the only church of which that is said that they kept the Word of God. Now hang on to your seat. If you're a guest or if you're a Christian from some other place other than this, hang on to your seat. But this just happens to be the church period that published the King James Bible in 1611. And now listen. It was that Bible that they, as the Scripture instructs, it was that Bible that they held fast. It was that Bible that they believed. It was that Bible that they studied. It was that Bible that they preached. It was that Bible that they took to every corner of the globe. It was that Bible through which they taught the world the English language, not so they could teach them English, but so they could teach them the truth of God. That was the Bible that they kept. There's no doubt about that. I mean, it's just a, it's a historical fact. The King James Bible was the Bible of the Philadelphian church period. And the truth is, that Bible right there, that Bible came to this planet, and historically, what what you see there is the door opened, and the nation of England, and and shortly thereafter, the, the nation of the United States of America, they took it around the world. And then in 1888, England turned its back on the King James Version. In 1901, the United States turned its back on the King James Version. And you know what happened? Anybody know? The door closed. This book opened it. And when those two nations turned their back on it, the door closed and we entered into the Laodicean church period where Jesus stands at the door and knocks... And he's on the outside. And I'm telling you, that's just the way the facts shake down. I mean, that's not because, you know, I'm I'm trying to champion some cause for a version of the Bible. I'm just telling you, historically, that is what took place on this planet. Okay, now you've got to give me, even if you you don't think that that was the key. 
that opened and closed the door. And again, there's no doubt about it. The Philadelphian period was the church of the open door. The church of the Laodicean period is the church of the closed door. Something opened it. Something closed it. And it all has to do with a, with a book. But that's the book that they kept. Okay, now, w- will you give me that? That's the only Bible that those people that were taking this book to the end of their... That's the only Bible that they knew. That was the Bible that they trusted. Okay, so when he says, Thou hast kept my word, understand, this is what he was talking about there. And, and now I'm really going to wig you out. Notice what Jesus calls this Bible that they kept. Do you see what he calls it? I love it. He calls it my word. Thou hast kept my word. You know what? If this book was good enough for Jesus himself to call his word, suffice it to say, you'll never catch me calling it anything less than that, right? And folks, listen, this is not just a reliable translation. This isn't just a a trustworthy approximation of the truth of God. According to Jesus' own lips, this is the Word of God. This is my Word. And He gives the verification of it right there in verse 8. Pastor Mark, come on, what are you doing here? You know, we're trying to reach the people of this Laodicean church period, and don't you know that this is a controversial subject, and don't you know, come on, Pastor Moore, don't you know that this is an extreme view, and aren't you afraid that this is ultimately going to hurt our effectiveness in trying to reach this world if we're constantly talking about that version and taking those extreme stands on that stuff? No, not worried about it. Don't, don't you see? Listen. Uh, the Philadelphian church period was 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 what hmm. the Philadelphian church period was was what it was for crying out loud. It was what it was. <laughs> I love old people. It was what it was. Because of the Bible they kept. I guess the Lord wanted to emphasize that that point. He wanted the exclamation point. And and you see, now listen. If we're ever going to be what they were, and experience the hand of God like they experienced, that, that gave them worldwide effectiveness, listen, it's not going to be because we're lukewarm about where the Bible really is today. It's going to be because of the Bible we keep. It's going to be because of our possession of the Word of God, just like it was for the Philadelphians. And at this point, the critic says, and maybe for those of you who may be a critic of what I'm saying this morning, maybe it will help you to know that been there and done that. I was a critic of the people that used to say the stuff that I would call the trash that I was just talking about. So I, I know the argument. Oh, yeah, well, you know, that, that's real cute about this thing about they 
kept the word of God. But you see, I mean, if you just, you know, these people say they really believe the Bible literally. And if you just look at what it says in verse 8, all it's saying is that they obeyed the word. They kept my word. All he's talking about there is obeyed. Okay. And, and I'll give you that that could be a real strong possibility if it weren't for verse 10. Because verse 10 forces your definition of the word kept. Verse 10 says, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, now watch this now, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation. You see the point? Oh, oh well, Jesus, Jesus is going to obey us because we obeyed Him. Go ahead. Plug, plug your definition of obeyed in there. You see, He forces you to come to that passage and have to see that what Jesus was saying is, is this. Listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep you Because that's what you did with my word. And you know something that's quite interesting? If you trace how the Holy Spirit guided the translation of, of this word kept in our King James Bible, you know how the word kept is translated in Jude 1 1 and 1 Thessalonians 5 23? You know how it's translated? Preserved. Plug that in right here. Because thou hast preserved my word. And you see, maybe that's why Jesus calls it in verse 10, the word of my patience. Why, why does he call that? Why does he call it that? You see, now, now listen, now follow this. All through the word of God, patience is connected to trials, Right? Being tried results in patience. James 1 3, uh, Romans 5 3. Okay, you see that all through the Word of God. And back in Psalm 12, why don't you turn back there? Now, now listen. In this psalm, the Lord, make sure you got the context, the Lord is connecting the preservation of His Word on this planet to the process of being tried. And look at what He says beginning in verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of of earth purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them. Okay, what is them? The words, and what kind of words? The pure words. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. And then he defines what he means by keep for you. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them. What's them? His thoughts? His ideas? His concept? His principles? No. 
His words, Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. And notice, he says that trying process of preserving his word is a sevenfold process. And interestingly enough, if you check out what was happening with the Word of God as the Philadelphian church period was getting underway, you find out that there was a purifying process and a trying of the words of the Lord in the English language that just happened to be a sevenfold process. And listen, for it to be a sevenfold process, you don't have to twist anything. You don't have to manipulate it, maneuver anything. You don't have to make it seven. That's just the way that it was. The Wycliffe Bible comes along in 1382. It's followed by the Tyndale Bible in 1525. The Coverdale Bible in 1535. The Matthew Bible in 1537. The Great Bible in 1539, the Geneva Bible in 1560, the Bishop's Bible in 1568, and then, in 1611, the word of his patience went through one more trial. And out comes God's preserved word for English-speaking people in the King James Bible. And they got it. In the Philadelphian church period, they got it. And you know what they did with it once they got it? He says, they kept it. And you know what? God used it. And that was one of the key things that made the Philadelphian church period so unbelievably fruitful. It was their possession of the Word of God. And listen, folks because of their faithfulness to this book. And because they kept it. You know what happened? It has now been committed to our trust. Paul wrote to Tur Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 20, and he said, Oh, Timothy, and if you'll just catch the heart of Paul as he makes that statement, Oh, Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. And oh, First Baptist, through our Philadelphian brothers and sisters, God has committed this book into our trust, and it is now our responsibility to keep it. And listen, this book rocked this world for a period of 300 years. I mean, this very book, this is the book that caused all of that splash that we, we went through and we've gone through and we've talked about over and over again. This was the book that did it for 300 solid years. And you know what, guys? We're living in 1997, almost 400 years now from the time that this book hit this planet. But you know what? If you'll leave it like you find it, and you allow it to be the final authority, and not some scholar who has set himself up as an authority over the Bible, and not some original manuscripts that aren't even in existence, and never one time ever comprised any Bible that has ever been in existence on this planet. And if we 
like Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13, if we'll receive it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, you know what? It'll still rock your world, and it'll still rock this world. But we've got to have a book. We've got to have the word of God. It's got to be in our possession. You see, you know why Laodicea is Laodicea? Because everybody believes in a Bible that they can't hold. Nobody's got a Bible in Laodicea. We believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God in the original manuscripts. Okay, Read those tonight for your daily devotions. Lead someone to Christ from those original manuscripts that you say you believe in. To say that you believe in the Bible, that it is inspired in the original manuscripts, is to say, I don't believe that God was able, after inspiring the Bible, to preserve it anywhere on this planet. Oh no, it's preserved in the context of the manuscripts that are in existence. Okay. What good is that? Because nobody can read them. No, nobody's got original ones anyway. And you see, we believe in something that doesn't even exist. And because we don't have a final authority, we got Laodicea. And what I'm trying to show you, listen, I probably, if this is a typical crowd, I ticked some people off this morning because we believe in the King James Version of the Bible. And you know what? Fine. I'm really not interested in trying to Manipulate the work of God. What we've been trying to do is find out how in the world, why in the world did God bless that Philadelphian church period the way that He did? And if this book was good enough for them and God could use it to rock the world, then I'm just stupid enough to believe that maybe we might be on to something to go grab the book that they kept and maybe we'll, we ought to hold on to this one that He commends them for keeping. And then there's, there's one more thing. We don't have the time, and I didn't plan to, to hit it after I began to, uh, you know what, about 4.30 this morning, I began to cross-reference that last point in a different way, and we're going to have fun next week. This is kind of a bummer today, you know. But, but listen, if you're here this morning, you've never received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you know what, I don't care what Bible you walked in here with this morning, and I would never in a million years condemn you for it, that's not the issue. The issue is not trying to convert people to our version of the Bible. And don't ever let that be your mission in life. What we're talking about here is, remember, we're that one local body that needs to cooperate together. We just probably ought to sing off the same sheet of music. You know? Because uh, if the choir is going to stand and, and sing, and everybody's got a different arrangement of the same song, we're going to sound like Ned Nostril and the Snort Sisters. You know, it'd just be real good if we were going to sing. We'd all use the same sheet of music. So in this church, what we've decided is this is, this is the music that we're going to sing from. And we're all going to speak the same thing and be of the same mind and of the same judgment as we've been commanded to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and, and verse 10. And, and you see, 
if that's not where you are, then hey, there's lots of churches that don't believe that. I can name quite a few of them for you. But, but the, the issue here is not trying to convert people to a version of the Bible. It, it's for people to understand that the God of this world loves them, but because of sin, they're separated. And there needs to be a conversion to Christ. Coming to the point to where you say, I know I'm a sinner, and I cannot do anything to have fellowship with you. But I do believe that you did everything that was necessary when you died on the cross. And so I come. I am a sinner. And I ask you to come into my life. I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. That's what this thing is all about. And you know what happens? He removes that sin. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. We enter into a relationship with God. And life for the first time begins to make just a little bit of sense. And you know what? For the first time, this book begins to make just a little bit of sense because the Bible says the natural man, that's somebody who hasn't had their sin removed, the natural man can't receive it. Neither can he know them because these are spiritually discerned and what God wants to do is he wants your spirit to be brought to life by him moving in to your spirit when you call upon his name. And if you'd like to do that this morning, our pastors will be up on either side of this, this room this morning to, to answer whatever questions that the service may have brought to, to your mind or to talk. or maybe, maybe you're ready. Maybe you'd like to receive the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. That, that can happen for you in, in this very service. And these men will be there to, to assist you in any way. Let, let's, let's stand together with our heads bowed.